Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. Shannon Robnett joins me here today. You can learn more about what he does and his team at shannonrobnett.com. I'll make sure that is a clickable link in the show notes. It's going to be an interesting conversation here today, Shannon, as we talk about ground-up real estate investing. Thanks yeah. for joining me. Well, thank you, Jack, for having me. I appreciate you. I wanted to call this out before we move on is that Shannon will be at the multifamily mastermind conference in Vail, Colorado coming up here soon. So you might want to check that out as well, but those have to be some interesting times. Is that a multi-day event, Shannon? Yeah, it is. I'm speaking there um, on what the face of construction looks like currently with COVID delays that have never seemed to go away, financing hurdles that we're now we're not now facing, but are similar to what we've been facing in the past. And the cheap and easy money seems to have evaporated. So it'll be interesting to, to discuss that with, with other professionals. A lot of the podcasts that I've done is acquiring existing properties. Yeah. So could we start things off? And, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but can you tell me how you found your way into ground up development like this? Sure. I was born into it. My father was a builder developer, did a lot of industrial, and my mother was a third generation realtor. I'm a fourth. My son's a fifth. So we tend to follow things that, that we can duplicate, that we can learn from others. And I tried the college route. It really wasn't for me. It didn't fit well. I was watching my brother make money while I was working at a coffee shop trying to pay my car insurance. And so I began building single family homes. I realized I didn't like homeowners. So I went into commercial construction and built police stations, fire stations, city halls, medical facilities, schools, gymnasiums, just about everything under the sun, lots of industrial as well. And I just gravitated toward multifamily as well. So we have a mixed portfolio of multifamily and industrial that we build on a consistent basis. And we also do acquire quite a few deals ourselves. You mentioned COVID. There was a lot of crazy numbers. So I'd be especially around construction, material, building material, everything was completely crazy, especially at that time. Have you seen some of that settle down right now? You know, we did. We were beginning 190 unit apartment complex as COVID hit. Our lumber package went from about four and a half million upwards of almost eight. We were able to do some buying and selling in there and bring that back down to around, around six, but it was still a lot more than our contingency. We've seen electrical panels take a year to get here. We've seen a lot of that. And a lot of that hasn't eased up. And so you're just having to allocate more time at the interest rates that we're paying is more costly in the project. But I think with, with proper underwriting and proper understanding of what your deliveries are and how you're building out your models so that you're understanding what's a viable product, that way you're able to get it all the way through to completion. I'd be curious, could you talk a little bit about the underwriting process? Because that has to be quite a bit different than acquiring a new property. Yeah, the thing that's the biggest difference is when you acquire a property, you have a stabilized NOI to go off of, and you're able to put a cap rate to that. And it's a pretty simple thing. Your biggest issue with, with buying existing is your due diligence. Are you really buying what you, what's been advertised? Are you checking your bank accounts against your leases? Are you reconciling everything? Have you really looked through the property? In 
multifamily on the construction side, people think you just build it, but you don't. We, the first thing that we do when we look at a multifamily project and we, we found a, a location that we think is viable, we go out to our property management teams and we get their take on the market. We try to understand what they're thinking our rents can be because it really doesn't matter what I build it for. That is completely irrelevant. What it matters is how I tenantize it and what my rents come out at. And a lot of people don't understand that. So if I'm going out and I'm looking at the market and I'm seeing that I've got a $1,600 a unit market price, then I can build backwards into my spreadsheets that tell me what are we going to be at for costs? Where are we going to be at for what can I afford to spend and still get to the cap eight that I build to, right? And so then from there, all my pieces start to fit into place. This is what I can pay for the land. This is what I know I can afford to pay for the building. If I'm in a $1,500 a unit market for a two bed, we're able to put this level of finishes. If we're looking at a $1,900 or a $2,000 a door market, we're able to put different finishes in, but we know that going in. And so everything that we do starts with the rent and works backwards. And then once we know that, we say, okay, here's what we can afford to pay for the land cost. Here's what our interest expense is. Here's our duration. And then it really brings us down to the last component in that is what do we have left to build with? And then once we've established that and we know that we've got 180 bucks a foot to build with or $210 a foot to build with, then we can begin to break that down. And we know that the plumber is about seven and a half percent of that total budget. And then we, I like to do a design build set of plans where I start with the subcontractors. I start with the guys that are really going to be building the project. And I get them to buy into that budget. I get them to agree that, yes, I can build that for $5,800 a door. I can do that level of plumbing finish for that. Because what I found, Jack, is that most engineers are disconnected with cost. And most plumbers, HVAC guys, framers, they can build a better product for and, and be budget focused. And then the engineer can design that project. So really pulling that team together really helps to get a set of plans that is complete, that is accurate, that can be built. We're not using a Kohler Moon Patrol toilet that's 4900 bucks a piece. We've got a toilet that still looks and functions like a toilet, but it's not overly priced. And with that, we're able to also get the subcontractor buy-in on pricing. Because if you design the plans and you told me you could do it for $5,100 or $5,300, and we come time to build the project six months later with the plans, it's really difficult for a contractor, an ethical contractor to come back to you and go, by the way, my budget's off. I'm now at $7,500. But I've seen so many guys go down the road and they've in a, in a multifamily project, 200 units or better, you're spending somewhere around $750,000 for a set of plans. You've got a major investment into that. And if you're going to spend all that time and money and then you can't afford to build it, you've just wasted money. Now you're going into the redraw phase. You're spending money and time that you don't necessarily want to. But if you're going this direction and coming in with a design build approach, then you've got something that come time to build it, you can build it. So you've taken that out of the equation. You've made everything work. You've got your underwriting done. And when we look at that, let's just say that we're looking at a 200 unit apartment complex. That's probably a 36 month duration from the very beginning to the last tenant moving in. We're going to we're going to look at that and we're going to project that we're going to need 36 months of interest, right? A lot of people will build that drawdown on their interest reserve to where rents start to kick in and start to offset that and everything else like that. 
we don't put that into our underwriting because we want to project out and we want to cushion that if we're two or three or four months behind at the tail end of that 190 unit, 200 unit apartment complex, you're talking about $100,000, $125,000 a month in interest, right? And so if you're collecting rents along the way, you're building a reserve, you're building in a safety net. A lot of the things that a lot of people have failed to do in the last couple of years that are things that we've modeled out for years, right? We've been doing this uh, for 27 years in my business, I mean, my father before that. So we, we know what interest rates of 6 7 and 8% look like. We know what 5% vacancy, 7% vacancy looks like. We know what a lease up schedule of six units a month on a new project versus six units a week that we've all experienced lately. And modeling properly really keeps you on track with success. Because if you can model that thing and it still works and everybody gets to make the kind of money that they're expecting, uh, then if things go really well, that's excellent, but you've got enough safety nets built in there that if things don't go perfectly, you're not splattered all over the road with the first bump. You're able to go through a couple of things. And so something like COVID did throw a wrench in our schedule. We were all the way through the contingency with just the lumber package. And so we had to do some other things to make sure that we could get there, going back to the bank and looking at how we could increase the loan size and things like that. We were able to get that stuff done. And then we modeled the rents at today's pricing. And now we're 24 months later and we're starting to tenetize that project. And our rents are $450 higher than we projected, but our cap rates are less. But we didn't project cap rates at a four, but cap rates at a six. So all of those things that we built in that the project does not look like it's, oh my God, it's a home run. We're going to make millions. We're going to make a good portion on this, but we're also going to survive because the opportunity to make a 30% return with a perfect world isn't the best way to project that where if you're looking at a 12% or a 14 or a 16% return with a very accurate model that allows for a lot of these things to happen, you're going to have a lot higher chance of success in being able to repeat that in multiple markets and multiple occasions. You mentioned that you get the contractors to buy in at a certain dollar amount. I have a hard enough time dealing with contractors on a single family house and get them to buy in on what they bid let alone contractors at this scale, much like these opportunities are, is, are you dealing with a completely different person? Is there a different type of contractor? How is that to manage? In all fairness, I think the level of contractor that's functioning on the single family or the, the fourplex handyman is a different caliber of contractor, usually an owner operator, usually maybe a three-man shop or a four-man shop. And not that they're not ethical, we do everything in writing, in contract form. We would have a purchase order. We would have, you know, we would have a formal contract that has, you know, liquidated damages talked about. It has, you know, payment plans. Everything is in there. And we find that when you're dealing with, I think my electrician has 64 people, right? That's a fairly good size outfit. We're dealing with people that are used to multi-million dollar contracts. I think our sheetrock bill on the last project was 1.4 million, right? And so you deal with a different level of contractor. This same contractor would be the guy that's hanging the sheetrock at the hospital. And I think as the dollar value goes up, you find people that are much more business savvy. I would guess that my sheetrock contractor has never, the owner of the company has never hung sheetrock, right? He is a business owner that uses sheetrock as his medium, where the people that you're tending to deal with are the craftsmen. They're the ones that 
actually do the work and they can be more skill set oriented rather than business oriented, not to take away from what they do, but it's a different level of performance that's expected. You couldn't, I, I hear some of the horror stories of people that are dealing with small time handymen and contractors. And I hear those horror stories and, and you couldn't possibly stay in business at, at this level if that's how you ran your business. I even joke that I think there's a million dollar idea there if somebody could even uh, regularly return phone calls and actually stick to appointments. <laughs> yeah, there there definitely is. And there are multiple platforms out there that I've seen come and go that Angie's List has tried that. They try to be the professional appointment center. Sometimes small business owners are in business for themselves because nobody else will hire them. You mentioned timeline. It sounds like you're still struggling a little bit with supply chain issues. How has that changed the way you do your underwriting? It's added front-end costs because now we're adding in more interest because you have carry costs. We, When we are building out an asset, the good news, bad news of it is the bank is very, they're very concerned about our interest reserve. I think when you're buying an existing asset, they're less concerned about your interest reserve and more concerned about your cash flow and your DSCR because they know that there's something instant that you can get a hold of. Even if you're doing a value add, you're going to take that down four or five units at a time, do the repairs and put them back online. We start out with 100% vacancy and will remain 100% vacant uh, for probably the first 18 months of our build. And so for the bank, they really want to see those happen. But the other thing too, Jack, is from the time I start, um, I have a lot longer lead time than someone that buys a, uh, a multifamily value add asset. If you just think about the timeline, I find a piece of ground, I'm going to go into negotiations with the owner on the piece of ground. I'm going to be talking with the city. That whole rezone process is probably going to take three to four months, five months. That's all considered part of my due diligence. If you were buying a multifamily asset, you would be closed in an operation for 30 to 60 days in that same four-month period of time. And you've, you would have come in, you would have done your due diligence, you would have raised your capital, you would have closed your loan. All of those things were expected the last 24 months. And we're in a situation where we run a lot slower. So we're pulling a building permit on a building, and we know that building is going to take nine months to complete. If our electrical panels are out 13 months, which they've been to the last three projects, we're now going to go site-centric on that, put in all the foundations or all the slabs, bring in a larger framing crew at one time to frame more buildings but have more of the site complete and really drive that schedule so that we're complete with the building at the same time that our electrical panels are showing up so that we're not sitting there with completed buildings that we're paying interest on that we can't put tenants in where we maximize the expenditure and minimize our inflow of capital from the tenants. Just to remind everybody, head over to shannonrobnet.com. As I mentioned, that will be a clickable link in the show notes. And if you found any value in what you've heard so far, do us a quick favor and share it with one of your investor friends. Shannon, you've probably have seen all walks of life now, people trying to do what you've done your company's been in business for this long. You've seen the ups and downs, inflated interest rates to market crashes. What are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen for somebody trying to get into this for the first time? I think we saw it a lot in 2020 and 2021 is people tried to get to a seller's number and people wanting to do a deal so badly 
I think when we saw everybody's talking about this new thing, this DSCR, what is this new term? It's something we've dealt with for 25 years that I, every time that I've looked at it, and it's just when interest rates got so low, there wasn't that debt service coverage ratio question from the bank. Now that interest rates are headed back up, it's pulling people back in. It's making them bring more capital to a deal. It was not uncommon, Jack, in 2021 to take down a deal um, that you were bringing 20% cash to the deal and the bank was not only throwing in 80%, they were financing your full rehab, right? Because the DSCR would allow it and things like that, where now we're back to you're not only not going to get your rehab financed, but you're going to have to bring 30 or 35% cash to the deal. And you're going to have to work hard to get this approved uh, or to get this, get this to cash flow and, and work correctly. And I think a lot of people got lulled into that cheap, easy money that allowed them to have to, to allow mistakes to compound without them noticing it until the reset. And now there's a lot of loans that are resetting and people are finding out that they're in trouble. Not only is the cap rate gone from a three and a half or a four up to a five or five and a quarter, which has erased millions of dollars worth of value for the appraisal, even though the cash flow remains probably better than it was when they took over, but it's allowed people to have higher vacancy rates and not be in panic mode. It's allowed people to not necessarily pay attention and for a beginner, that's that can be the death blow. That can be something where they're not paying attention. They don't understand that a 9% vacancy for multiple months in a row is putting you in a place of tremendous deficit when the time comes and, you're, and your rate adjusts and you're still at 9% and now your cap rate has gone up and you're trying to refinance and you're trying to do those things. It really can be a compounding effect that can really wipe people out. And I think the other thing that people have done is they haven't focused enough on the what ifs. What if rent doesn't grow at 9%? What if rent, what if we do have a tenant vacancy? What if we've all seen this? What if insurance goes up, right? We've had a massive reprice in insurance and people didn't have the reserves to get that through, to get it adjusted. That will all come out in the price of rents down the road because everybody has to absorb that cost. But there's a cycle to that. There's a timing of that. Maybe you moved in, in June and your insurance adjusted in July. You can't reprice that unit to that until next July. And if you're not dealing with proper reserves and proper forecasting, you could really find yourself in a world of hurt on this deal and find yourself on the short end of the stick. And I think a lot of people are, are finding that to be the issue. You brushed uh, along the lines of this with the raising interest rates. There's rumblings of a market crash you've had so much experience and your business has so much experience now. Do you see any trends or similarities to previous trouble times in the real estate market? I do. And I don't. The thing that I see as similarities is, is people in a group are like lemmings. They'll throw themselves off the cliff at the first sign of, or the first rumblings on CNN of market instability. And I remember going through the 08 crash and I saw the OGs in 08 that were not phased. They'd been through this before. They'd seen it. The younger guys like myself, I was 32, 33 going through that. It panicked. Having been through that, having come out the other side, having seen how things worked out, I have seen where proper preparation creates exit plans instead of panic plans. And so I, I think that we will have 
there will be a, a large contingent of reset, if you will, because of the rising interest rates, because of the rising cap rates, where something that was purchased last year for $75 million may come into refinance at 68. And so there's $5 million that they were planning on returning in investors' capital. And then they saw go from a 20 a loan to val- or an 80% loan to value to a 65% loan to value. And so now not only did they lose $5 million in, in equity, which was real cash to them because they bought at the top of the market, but they've also got to bring in another $15 million on a deal or $20 million on a deal. And in a lot of cases, people can't do that. For as much as we're talking about those troubled times that are possibly ahead, there's usually a company that's not seen as easily is the opportunity. What opportunity do you see in these times? I see tremendous opportunity and I am very bullish on the next three years. I think that number one, being in multifamily ground up development, we are the original value add. Right? We create value. We take sticks and stones. We build something for 65 or $70 million. We add the tenants to it. We've got, a, we've got a value at $90 million. So we've created that value. We're able to harvest that value in most cases. We've underwritten it properly. But I also see there's a large repricing now where a lot of the things that I passed on last year or two years ago are coming back to market at prices that are sustainable. Prices that I can go out and I can buy that asset. I can get a 6% cash on cash return from the beginning. I can bring my investors in. We can do the deal. We can be in a safe area where we've got 10-year money or 15-year money locked in and the prices all work where a lot of people were buying and figuring it out after they purchased. The days of million-dollar non-refundable earnest monies. But I see a lot of opportunity for people who are patient, for people who are well-positioned, people that are well-capitalized. I think we're going to get back to a place where deals are going to work like real estate deals did 10, 15, five years ago, and people are going to be able to get into that. Unfortunately, I think there's going to be some pain points for those that got in in 20 and 21 without a regard for what could be a correction. But the, the funny thing is, Jack, everything that I'm seeing is that the correction is not happening to the rents. And if you're looking at real estate, if you're looking at cash flow, the rents are the only thing that matters. The price can adjust, right? You could be in a deal that you paid 80,000 or 80 million in 20. If you've got 10 year money and your rents are coming up, you're going to be awesome. You're going to be more than fine. It's those that, that didn't take into consideration the market changes that could happen. And so I look at opportunities like that. I look at things that are going to be available. I think that real estate is going to come back into a realm where cash flow is going to be really. The main focus is not the appreciation of, hey, we bought it for $45 million and we're selling it for $55 million in, in seven months or something like that. It's the slow, steady, patient game that it's always been. What do you have a project going on right now and where is it located? We've got four ground up developments going right now. We've got a 91 unit apartment complex here in Boise, Idaho. We've got another 60 unit in Nampa, Idaho. We've, we're getting ready to start a 60 unit ground up in Nashville, Tennessee. And then we've got a, a 40,000 square foot uh, single tenant warehouse in Florida. So those are the ground up projects we have coming out of the ground right now. If you could see my desk, I've got opportunities over here of three others to look at. So we still see, and, and, and Jack, to, to be clear, we're short housing units in America, right? We still have an underlying supply problem. We have tenants that are topped out on the rents. So I still see a long curve of upward trending in 
occupancy in new product coming on in vacancy rates trending to stent tending to stay in that 95 to 97% occupied and still seeing rents continue to trend upwards at three to 5%. So I think it's, we're still in for a very strong real estate market. Are you uh, sticking to certain markets or are you branching out a little bit right now? We are branching out, but we are sticking to certain markets. So the first thing I do before I'll ever even look at a deal, uh, Jack, is, is I will analyze that market. In fact, yesterday I just did a, a webinar uh, and if you go to shannonrobnet.com, you can find that webinar there. I just did a webinar on, on the Raleigh-Durham market. Two weeks before that, I, I did one on Nashville. Two weeks before that, it was Houston and, and Boise. And I really like to look at markets because if you were to compare Nashville, Tennessee, and Houston, they're both growing markets. They're both in the top, top 10 of the nation on a consistent basis, but they're both good for different things. The Houston market is more of a blue-collar market, $45,000 or $60,000 household income where Nashville has is in the high 70s, right? So when you're looking at new product, it's really hard to make new product work at what rents could be at $60,000 per household income. 35% of that doesn't allow you to rent a new apartment. If that's the majority of Houston, maybe Houston's an industrial market. We bought a couple of nice deals down there in the last year. Looking at the Nashville market, the growth that's happening in there, the industry that's coming in, the things that are headed up, Raleigh-Durham is the same way. So I would rather have a mediocre deal in a fabulous market than a fabulous deal in a mediocre market, because the reality is the market's going to do more to raise your prices and appreciate your asset than your deal ever will. So don't fall in love with the deal. Fall in love with the market first. That's great advice. Just one last time, ShannonRobNet.com. That's going to be clickable in the show notes. And maybe you want to check out the Multifamily Mastermind Conference in Vail, Colorado. But Shannon, this has been a great conversation. And we could go in a variety of ways in a million different avenues here. But I'm hoping we can close out the episode with some rapid fire questions. Let's do it, Jack. I appreciate it. Here's your chance to bust a real estate investing myth. That has been on those late night programs. It's just cash box money, right? Yeah. I think that you, I think that the myth of get rich quick in real estate is definitely something that is getting busted now. You can get rich in real estate. I've never seen anybody do it quickly that makes consistent money. You might whack a home run every once in a while, but your wealth is built by singles and doubles. Yeah. It, 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 it's been one of the consistent myth busts bustings that have become this episode. <laughs> I can imagine. What book would you recommend? The one I like, and I like it for a variety of reasons, but it's Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference. Uh, yeah. I love the FBI side of the stories, but I also like how he's applying that to business. I recently had lunch with him at Limitless in Phoenix and had a really great chat with the guy. He's pretty incredible, but he's got a lot of business techniques that don't just apply to multifamily. I'm trying to use them in my personal life. They're not really working real well on my kids. We're working with the hostage negotiation part to see if we can't get that to work out. Yeah, I can't say enough. I actually saw a, a brief webinar with him just the other day, and he focused on just getting to the no, changing your questions to get to yeah, the no. Exactly. And I've been trying to do that over the past week. And the problem is sometimes we phrase those questions properly and we do get to the no, but it's not the right. What is one tool that you can, can't can live without, whether it's personal or business? 
the it's basic, man. I absolutely live by my calendar. Time blocking for me is so important. As a visionary, I find myself scattered all over the board. But if I time block and I know that this is my time to be on here with you, that's the only thing I'm doing. My staff knows that. And I literally live by a very basic calendar. Yeah. That, there's. Have you played around with any of those AI tools that do that? I've looked at that, I, you know, where they fill your calendar with other tasks that you've got on your list and things like that. But I got to tell you, Jack, this is uh, number three of seven appointments today. So mm-hmm. I don't need don't need any help filling my calendar. <laughs> I need to have uh, a lunch break in there somewhere and, and some time to go just stretch my legs. But other than that, I could see how those could be very helpful for other people. If you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Well, this is not going to be popular. I would tell myself to get a job. I've never had a, a job as an adult. To be able to see behind somebody else's curtain, to see how their machine works, good, bad, and indifferent, I think would be would help me to create a lot better systems. Every dollar I've made came from a mistake. Every system we have came from a failure. And not having been able to go to college and get the business systems or to go to work for somebody else and see how it's all categorically organized and have all of that come together for me has been challenging that I know if I would have gone to work for somebody at 21, 22, I would probably have a lot more of that ironed out at an earlier point in my life which would have launched my career and launched my companies farther and faster. Yeah. I always have this theory that everything has led you to this point. There's lessons to be learned if you're willing to take those lessons on. And most people don't want to do that. They don't want to tutor under somebody else. They don't want to trade their time for money because the time freedom is all really what we're after. But the reality is if you're putting in the time when you're younger and you're getting those systems and you're getting those contacts and you're getting uh, those inroads to people in the industry you want to be in, you're not wasting time. You're building your resume, you're adding your Rolodex, and all of those will serve you very well later on in life. And we just tend to be impatient. In under 60 seconds, can you give everybody a single tip or trick that they can implement in their business or life here today? The easiest thing you can do is to find out what you are good at, to come up with what your number one skill set is, and, and always keep that in the forefront and the focus. If you're good at finding deals, don't try and raise capital. If you're good at raising capital, don't try and find deals. Find partnerships and work with other people because their skill set will, will implement really well with yours. It will catapult your whole organization forward, and you're not having to be all things to all people. A lot of people believe that, and it's a total myth and a total fallacy. You can be really good at one thing, Be that one trick pony and go out there and find partners that are the other pieces. Well, Shannon, is there a question or concept you wished we would have covered here today? Man, Jack, we've been all over the map. This has been a great interview, and I really appreciate your thoroughness and your ability as a podcast host to really direct the conversation and come up with some good material. I appreciate your time. I hope you'll come back again sometime. It is Shannon Robcom. But thanks again, Shannon. This was great. Thank you, Jack. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.